Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. This talk is titled, Christ and the O Antiphons. And its argument is this. By meditating on Christ and the O Antiphons, we can, in God's grace, be more receptive to our Savior's coming. This talk has three parts. First, we'll consider an overview of the O Antiphons. What are these O Antiphons? Then we're going to consider Christ in the Old Testament. And then third, look at Christ in the O Antiphon that is for today, December 18th, and that is O Adonai. So those are the three parts. Oh, an overview of the O Antiphons, then going back to Christ in the Old Testament, and then having a focus on Christ and the O Adonai Antiphon. So what are the O Antiphons? Well, we're experiencing now in the sacred liturgy. From December 17th through December 23rd, at Vespers, the church sings these O Antiphons, and sure enough, they begin with the letter O, okay? So it's an address, okay? To whom are we speaking? Christ. So we're speaking to Jesus Christ, who is coming, and we want then to focus our attention on him. And we are doing this with texts that are ancient, all right? We don't know exactly how old the O antiphons are. Uh, sometimes people uh, will say 8th or 9th centuries. Occasionally, someone will even say the 6th century because of something in Boethius. Um, but uh, we are singing texts that are over a millennium old. And then to think about how these texts come to us, especially for the, from the tradition of the Roman church's practice. Okay, so in the Middle Ages, there were various liturgical uh, variations among the different uh, geographic churches. And so the O antiphons are especially from the Church of Rome. There were some churches that would have more than seven antiphons, okay? So uh, that uh, one particular antiphon is O Virgo Virginum, O Virgin of Virgins, okay? Well, now we're not speaking to Christ there, right? We're speaking to his mother, the Virgin of Virgins in that antiphon. And actually, we are not because we don't have them in our liturgy. Um, but there were some churches that even had up to 12 O antiphons, okay? So... This is where, in terms of, of thinking about the multiplicity of medieval practices and how we have this particular Roman tradition of seven antiphons. In the 19th century, uh, Prosper Garanger, who was a great Benedictine uh, liturgist, scholar of the liturgy, wrote a work that's called The Liturgical Year that you can find in English. And, and so it's translated 
and he has uh, a beautiful little account of the O antiphons that I consulted for this. And one of the things that he says is that these antiphons are sung at the Magnificat to show us that the Savior whom we expect is to come to us by Mary. All right, so this is where in terms of the O antiphons are precisely antiphons. All right, so that you think about the sacred liturgy, and then an antiphon is meant to be with something, to have some sort of context. And the custom of the church is to have an O antiphon within the context of Our Lady's Canticle of Thanksgiving. Now, in the 1980s, uh, a, a French scholar by the name of Gerard Jeannette talked about paratexts, and there is a, a sort of sub-discipline in the academy to think about how texts have paratexts. In other words, that you have a text that is, uh, say, um, uh, independent, self-sustaining, but then you have various kinds of interpretive texts that are attached to it. So in terms of a book, that you have uh, the text of a book, but then you could have a forward index. You have all the different uh, notes, uh, different kinds of things that accompany it. All right, well, I don't want to go there exactly in terms of his way of interpreting paratext, but it is helpful us to think about how that just as when you pick up a book and you have all sorts of things that accompany a text that allow us to have particular kinds of interpretations of that text. So in the sacred liturgy, when in the divine office we sing the Magnificat, say this evening, we'll sing the Magnificat through the O Adonai Antiphon. So that we're going to sing it at the beginning and at the end of the Magnificat. Right now, this then can help us uh, think about levels of interpretation, right? Because how does the Magnificat help us meditate on Christ in the O Antiphons? And how does meditating on Christ in the O Antiphons help us sing with Our Lady, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. All right, so this is where in terms of just putting it within the liturgical context that then we can see, oh, okay, by, by meditating more about Christ as presented in the O Antiphon, we're then able to sing Our Lady's Magnificat in a new way. And then by singing Our Lady's Magnificat in this way, we're also able to know a little bit more about who Christ is in the O Antiphon. Okay, so in terms of levels of, of interpreting each other. Now, just in terms of thinking about the set as a whole, okay, so in terms of the set of seven antiphons, I'd like for us just to hear this and then to think about what do the seven antiphons have in common, okay? All right, so just listen to the seven antiphons. December 17th, O Sapientia. O wisdom who came forth from the mouth of the Most High, mightily reaching out from end to end and ordering all things sweetly, come to teach us the way of prudence. December 18th, today, O Adonai. O Adonai and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law upon Sinai, come to redeem us with your outstretched arm. December 19th, O Rodex Jesse, O Root of Jesse, you who stand as the sign for the peoples, at whom kings will close their mouth, whom the nations will entreat, come now to free us and do not delay. December 20th, O Clavis Davi, O key of David and scepter of the house of Israel, you who open and no one closes, you who close and no one opens, come and lead out of prison the captive who sits in darkness in the shadow of death. December 21st, O Oriens, 
O day spring, brightness of eternal light and the sun of justice, come and illumine those sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. December 22nd, O Rex. O king of the nations and their desire, you the capstone who make of two things one, come and save man whom you formed out of the mire. O Emmanuel, December 23rd. O Emmanuel, our king and lawgiver, the desire of the nations and their savior, come to save us, O Lord our God. Now, in terms of how they are seen as a set, some people will look at that first word after the O and then look backwards, and then you see that the seven letters spell the Latin phrase arrow cross. I will be tomorrow. So then some will extrapolate, I'll be there tomorrow, I'll be with you tomorrow. Why tomorrow? Because they end, again, on the evening of December 23rd, and we begin celebrating the nativity of our Savior, Jesus Christ, on the evening of December 24th. Okay, so I'll be there tomorrow. So then, uh, then you, you think, okay, and then, tw- and then the morning of 25th, come, let us adore him, okay, so that we, we really have the sense then of this progression of, and how there's a unity. Now, let's think more, though, about the unity. What did you find in common among these seven? All right, well, let's just stay, start with some of the basics. They're all addressed to Christ, okay, and that all of them are addressed to Christ under different titles, Okay, so the multiplicity about how Jesus is, is known. And all of these titles are found in the Old Testament. And that, then the, that it is basically in two parts. One is uh, this invocation of Christ under an Old Testament title with an Old Testament description. Okay, so various Old Testament texts are put together actually for the description of who Christ is. And then there is this uh, request. And what is the request? Come. Why? We need you. And this is really at the heart of it all. We need him. We need this one who is seen by all these different Old Testament titles and we ask him to come. All right now, this is where, in terms of just thinking about coming, all right, so um, uh, that if I say come, okay, uh, that then say, you know, if I say come, Father Jonah, uh, you know, Father Jonah then uh, may uh, actually <laughs> get up and then come over, okay? So this is in terms of how he comes uh, and he actually comes to me. And, and I do this for a reason, okay? So if I ask someone to come, it's because of a particular reason. Now with God, God is everywhere, okay? So that there's by his presence, essence, power, okay? That, that he is in all places because he is beyond place. But he can exercise his power in particular places, And when we want him to come, we have a sense of a sort of absence, okay? And this is where, in terms of just thinking about, you know, uh, uh, we rightly stress uh, real presence. We can also think about how we ask someone to come because of an absence. Advent is especially asking the Lord to come because we need him. We don't have everything that we need. 
We need him. We need him to exercise his power in a particular way. And what he chooses to, to do is that he wants to come to us in the way that is most that is most to us, in us, for us, the incarnation. You know, we're here in this intellectual retreat, focusing on the mystery of the incarnation to prepare for the birth of our Lord. And so because we know that there is an absence in our life, we can say, come, and God answers this, the, the almighty God, uh, the one who uh, called his holy people in the old covenant, he wants to be with us, in us, for us, in as closest way possible, the incarnation. And during the season of Advent, the entire prayer of this liturgical season can really come down to that one word, come. If you don't know what to pray today, just pray come. Pray in your heart, come. Have a sense of your need, of, of the absence, and ask the Lord to fill it. Don't try to fill it in some other way in terms of the created things of this world. You know, everything that is in this world is good that God made. Don't be satisfied with the things that God made. Because only God who made these things can satisfy our hearts. And we ask him, come, come. Right? And then how this then is, uh, this is making actual what we read in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, we read there that the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the hearer say, come. All right? Because then how in Advent, we have the sense of Jesus's coming. Okay? So he who was the bridegroom of the church and that the spirit and the bride, the church, say, come. And then we are, are being gathered up into this come because ultimately we believe that the Lord Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, will come again to save. You know, he will judge the living and the dead. He will, he will reign with justice. Come, come, come now into our hearts. Right, so this is where in terms of, I, I really want us to be able to see the sense of, 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 of the urgency of this. And then how Our Lady is going to help us, and we'll, we'll focus this especially even more when we get to the third part of our talk. Okay, so in terms of just thinking about how Our Lady is, is the model one of prayer who allows us to pray, come. Okay, so she who is filled with the Spirit, who knows the coming of the Son in her, with her, for her, she, she especially can help us in the Advent prayer and praying the O Antiphons, okay? So the, so the mutuality of the O Antiphons and the Magnificat. Now, getting to part two of this talk, part two, again, is on Christ in the Old Testament. And I'd like to complicate things, all right? So just in terms of being able to see how there is a concern and objection. And I'd like for us to listen to the Pontifical Biblical Commission's document, The Jewish People and Their Sacred Scriptures in the Christian Bible. So this came out in the year 2001. The English translation was ready the following year in 2002. And in number 20 of the PBC Commission document, and by the way, uh, after the Second Vatican Council, the Pontifical Biblical Commission does not have uh, magisterial authority. Okay, So even though it's of Rome, it's, it's kind of like the International Theological Commission that 
that actually was began after the Second Vatican Council. So these are advisory documents, uh, and so they're, they're, they're helpful. I'd like for us to listen to something that is said in number 20 concerning the patristic exegesis of allegory. So patristic meaning that this is what the fathers of the church used. So the first several centuries of the church's life, uh, these particular saints who interpreted the scripture, and allegory in terms of particularly, uh, well, you can listen to how it's explained here about finding Christ and Christian realities in the Old Testament, okay, through different kinds of symbolism. There's a whole, uh, there are various schools of deb debate about even what allegory is, but just listen to what the PBC says. Any detail capable of establishing contact between an Old Testament episode and Christian realities was exploited. In every page of the Old Testament, in addition, many direct and specific allusions to Christ and the Christian life were found, but there was a danger of detaching each detail from its context and severing the relationship between the biblical text and the concrete reality of salvation history. Interpretation then became arbitrary. Certainly the proposed teaching had a certain value because it was animated by faith and guided by a comprehensive understanding of scripture read in the tradition, but such teaching was not based on the commentated text. It was superimposed on it. It was inevitable, therefore, that at the moment of its greatest success, it went into irreversible decline. All right, so this is where, in terms of the PBC appreciation for patristic biblical exegesis, that, um, that, the, that it was uh, out of, it says, scripture read in the tradition, uh, and that they were finding specific allusions to Christ and the Christian life at every page of the Old Testament every page, and all sorts of details. They, they were finding Christ everywhere, all right? And, um, and so this is where it, interpretation then became arbitrary, okay? Because there was no sense to it, okay? And then, um, and then it was that, uh, that teaching was not based on the commentated text. It was superimposed on it. Right now, the Pontifical Biblical Mission uh, then says, uh, in terms, if you were to continue this line of thinking, that St. Thomas Aquinas is then able to help us see that arguments, theological arguments or doctrinal arguments, are made precisely upon the literal sense. And that then you have this movement of the literal sense, which continues to uh, modern times, and that then there's a reversal, so that way, um, uh, we'll listen to the PBC. And so an inverse process was set in motion. The relation between the Old Testament and Christian realities was now restricted to a limited number of Old Testament texts. Today, there's the danger of going to the opposite extreme of denying outright, together with the excesses of the allegorical method, all patristic exegesis, and the very idea of a Christian and Christological reading of Old Testament texts. All right, and so, so the PBC says, oh, okay, well, now people have gone too far in the other direction. What are we to do? All right, so they offer various helpful comments uh, on this, but I'd like for us to think about what they're actually saying and just to be able to see uh, that I'd like in some ways something of this to be challenged, okay? Now, I can understand the, that there's a great importance of being able to see, uh, uh, well, as the title is, the Jewish people and their sacred scriptures in the Christian Bible, okay? I'd like for us to see that, particularly in terms of the Christian respect for the Bible 
as a whole, as being scripture, that then we see that this is about God. In fact, that's authored by God, is about God, and it's for God's people. All right, so this is where in terms of texts that, uh, uh, that we think scripture has this totality because of expressing divine revelation of who God is and of God's plan for us. So what is the Old Testament about? The Old Testament is about God, okay? And when you hold up a Bible, uh, most of the Bible actually is the Old Testament, okay? Now, there are all sorts of people in Christian history who actually have not liked the Old Testament. So Marcion, okay? So Marcion in the second century was an arch heretic who came from Pontus near the Black Sea. He came to the Church of Rome. And he decided to tell people that, uh, that there were these antitheses, okay? So in terms of, say, Moses stretches out his hands, okay? And what does he do? Well, 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 Christ, he stretches out his hands. What does he do? He stretches out his hands to save people. Moses, oh, this is the battle against Amalek. Oh, oh, Moses killed people. Okay, do you see how Moses stretches out his hands because of a battle to kill people, to kill the Amaleks, to kill Amalekites? Um, whereas Christ stretches out his hands to save. Ooh, okay, so the Old Testament then is really um, something about uh, the creator who, by the way, is not the God of Jesus Christ. All right, so Marcionism uh, was uh, being spread and the Church of Rome said, because Marcion actually gave Rome a lot of money, mm -hmm. um, uh, Rome said, uh, you can take your money and leave. All right. And at different times in church history, people have had Marcionite interpretations where they disconnect the Old Testament from Jesus. And this is not helpful for um, for. Um, Jewish-Christian relations, either, okay? <laughs> right, so this is where, in terms of, because there are certain, yeah, seriously, and you can go to uh, uh, Adolf von Harnack's approach, uh, so in terms of 19th century, early 20th century German, uh, pro, uh, certain liberal scholarship where they uh, did not want the doctrines, and then you can think about uh, Immanuel Kant, and then the whole Kantian idea of law, and, and then various kinds of influences. Um, all right, so this is, uh, Marcionism is a live threat, all right? And so, I, uh, so then to be able to see how there are different things here, but I'd like for us to emphasize that the Old Testament, we believe, is the scriptures of Israel, of God's holy people, and it's from God. It's about God. It's for God's plan, for God's people. Okay, it's all about God. Uh, now, the thing about Christ is, uh, who's Christ? He's God. He's God. This is really important. Okay, so we're going to make sure that we get the connections because the fathers of the church made these connections. Okay, and uh, so... The Second Vatican Council in the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, Dei Verbum, says Christ is both the mediator and the fullness of all revelation. The mediator and the fullness of all revelation. All right, so this is where, um, is that of the Old Testament too? 
Well, yes, actually. Um, so then you think, okay, so he's mediator, he's mediating, and he is the fullness of all revelation. And to take that seriously. Right? And then actually, when you read different things from the New Testament, we encounter claims that all scripture is fulfilled in Christ. All right, so this is where, in terms of just thinking about how uh, that in Matthew 5, in terms of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus came uh, uh, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Okay? To fulfill it. And then, whatever in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, whatever promises there are, their yes is in Him, is in Christ. Okay, whatever promises God made, their yes is in Christ. Did God make promises in the Old Testament? Their yes is in Christ. Okay, so, or Romans 10, about how, uh, for Christ is the end of the law, okay, the end, you know, that everything points to him. Um, and then to consider also in terms of the sacred liturgy, during these uh, days, uh, those last days of Advent, that in Eucharistic Preface 2 uh, of Advent, uh, the pr priest prays, for all the oracles of the prophets foretold him. All the oracles of the prophets foretold him. Does the priest mean that? Does the church mean that? Seriously. Because it's a big claim. All the oracles. And if someone said, well, you know, that oracle was about a particular war that we can date. On some level, okay, that's good. But really, in terms of our, for us and for our salvation, are all the oracles about uh, Jesus and foretelling him or not? All right, because if, if they're not, then we shouldn't use language we don't mean. Okay? All right, so this is where in terms of just, it, if we don't mean it, please don't say it. Please don't. Okay, and the, and. Uh, and then the liturgy should be, you know, revised in some way, or we should, yeah. but we say certain things, okay? In fact, God says certain things to us in the Bible. Um, introducing the book of the prophet Isaiah, St. Jerome famously writes, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. You know, Isaiah is the great Advent prophet, and, and that he communicates the gospel in a particular way. Now, in the uh, uh, in the uh, in St. Augustine's lifetime, Manichaeism had elements that you could also find in Marcionism. So Manichaeism was a world religion that actually at its height stretched from China all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, so you just and it and it developed in different ways uh, through the world. In North Africa, they had a very Christian structure of having bishops. Uh, so, uh, so Manny himself uh, was inspired in some ways by Jesus, and uh, Manny was crucified. Uh, and in terms of uh, his claim of being the new Paraclete, and just there were all sorts of connections that people made to to look at Manny. Well, Augustine knew a Manichaean bishop by the name of Faustus, and we can read about him in the book of and the books of the Confessions. Well, while he's writing Confessions, he writes this long anti-Manichaean work called Against Faustus. And he um, is taking some texts from Faustus and replying to Faustus during, in this Contra Faustum. And uh, St. Augustine is speaking about the Old Testament and defending 
the the truthfulness of God in the Old Testament. Because because by the way, the Manich, the Manichaeans thought that the Manichaeans thought that they themselves were the true Christians. Okay, so so they're laying claim to being true Christian, and Saint Augustine says, "Let us who are now the body of Christ." Recognize in the psalm our own voice and say to him, The unjust have told me of delights, but they are not like your law, O Lord. As I make my way and gasp in that sweat coming from our human condemnation, Christ meets and refreshes me everywhere in those books, everywhere in those scriptures, whether openly or in a hidden manner. He sets a fire for me, the desire to find him as a result of some difficulty in discovering him, so that I may eagerly absorb what I find and hold it for my salvation, hidden within the marrow of my bones. Michael Cameron, a great Augustinian scholar at the University of Portland, has a book titled Christ Meets Me Everywhere, about St. Augustine's early figural exegesis. And you know, when, when Augustine's reading the Old Testament, he says, Christ meets me everywhere. Okay, and that he meets me to refresh me. He comes to save me. Now, uh, and then to be able to see, let's make the connection again. Is God in every detail of the Old Testament? And if you say, oh, yes, because he is the author of it. He is what the Old Testament is about. It's for his people. Yes, of course, because if, if God wasn't there, then it really wouldn't be scripture. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? God. God, thank you. <laughs> All right, so this is where in terms of just being able to make the connection, because otherwise, like um, in terms of, say, Nestorianism, if you had uh, a Nestorian way of thinking, oh, Mary is the mother of Jesus, okay? She is the Christotokos. Uh, she's not the Theotokos, okay? So God wasn't uh, in a manger, Nestorius would say. You know, um, God, uh, my, my dear fellow, uh, wouldn't, uh, doesn't do things like that, okay? It's, it's, this is Jesus. This is Christ. But we don't call him God, okay? That's Nestorius's way of, of thinking. And Cyril of Alexandria, the Council of Ephesus, the, the church replies, Mary is Theotokos, mother of God. Why? Christ is God. Okay, He's only one person, and Mary gave birth to a person. And so then you think about, oh, okay, so if that's, if that's true in terms of the Christological doctrine of the Incarnation, well, can it also be true in terms of interpreting sacred scripture? The, the totality of this in terms of God, well, Christ is the eternal Son of the Father who breathes forth the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you just you just think about uh, about this mystery. And it's like, oh yeah, it all fits together. Yes, it all fits together. Now uh, there are various theologians who are having responses to help people understand more and more how this all fits together. So a Canadian theologian by the name of Hans Burzma, who comes from a Dutch Reformed tradition and who's now an Anglican priest, wrote a book titled "Scripture as Real Presence." Sacramental Exegesis and the Early Church. So scripture as real presence, sacramental exegesis in the early church. And he said that when he was basically in training, he understood that you had the Old Testament in terms of his history, historical context, and then you go to the New Testament, and then you go to the church. Okay, so you have 
um, basically one, two, three, you know, you have, you have different steps. And so, yes, but, but that is in terms of historical. And then frankly, you know, in terms of what we actually do, the experiences today. He said that as he was reading the fathers of the church, he came to find that actually the fathers of the church find Christ in the Old Testament and they also find the church in the Old Testament. That it's all there because this is how God is speaking because we have faith that we're able to see this, okay? Um, this is where, in terms of John Cavadini and his essay uh, uh, on scriptural interpretation, the Oxford Handbook of Early Christian Biblical Interpretation, uh, that he wants especially us to realize that for the literal sense in the early church, that the literal sense was always the literal sense of scripture, okay? It's not the literal sense of some other sort of uh, of text from this culture. It, for the fathers of the church, it is scripture. So it's the literal sense of what God is intending in this, okay? Uh, another uh, a scholar who is a colleague of John Cavadini at the University of Notre Dame is um, Gary Anderson, who has a book, Christian Doctrine and the Old Testament, Theology in the Service of Biblical Exegesis. So Gary Anderson, Christian Doctrine and the Old Testament, Theology and the Service of Biblical Exegesis. Gary Anderson is a Catholic scholar who knows Christian and Jewish traditions very well and can explain anything from the Bible just so beautifully. So uh, he and Cavadini were two of my teachers for my graduate studies. And, and, and so I, I've been formed by, by them to think in particular ways. Um, in terms of, of his work uh, in this book concerning Christology, uh, he has a chapter, The Incarnation in the Temple. And he says, I will make the perhaps surprising claim that reading the Old Testament from a Christological vantage point does not efface a Jewish reading, but deeply respects it. Okay, now let's listen to that again. I will make the perhaps surprising claim that reading the Old Testament from a Christological vantage point does not efface a Jewish reading, but deeply respects it. Anderson continues, the best way to approach this particular challenge is to follow the mode of canonical reading, first marked out by Brevard Childs, and then deep and extended by his student Christopher Sykes. Let us begin with some general remarks about the essential lineaments of this method. Okay, so this is where in terms of that there's a deference of the New Testament to the Old, and then to be able to see that, um, that Christians proclaim that the word was made flesh. And then in terms of being able to link that, um, that, that dwelling of the word among us to the tabernacle and the various details of the tabernacle that help us then consider the incarnation and that respect the details of the, of the tabernacle. Okay, so, so I highly recommend Gary Anderson's work. Now, the third part of this talk uh, is now that we have this basis in terms of just looking at Christ uh, in the Old Testament, because the O antiphons are replete with, uh, with verses from the Old Testament, is to focus on today's antiphon, Christ in the O Adonai antiphon. And for this, I'd like for us to listen to Father Jonah uh, uh, sing the O Adonai antiphon. So, so would you please come up and come, Father Jonah? <laughs> And uh, and sing. Oh, Adonai, et tuxtomus Israel, 
Quae mohuis in ine flamme rubi, aparovis dii, et in sina legem de redisti, veni ad redimendum nos, in brachio extento, the translation of this is, O Adonai and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law upon Sinai, come to redeem us with your outstretched arm. Now, in terms of taking our original questions about the O antiphons as a whole and applying them particularly to this O antiphon, how does the Magnificat help us meditate on Christ in the O Adonai antiphon? How does meditating on Christ in the O Adonai antiphon help us sing with Our Lady, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. First of all, Adonai. Now, uh, the Mass, Alleluia, versicle, has this verse, but omits, O Adonai. All right, so it begins in terms of the, uh, the leader of the house of Israel. So this is where we, you know, Adonai is not a usual word, okay? It's, it's a Hebrew word, and it means my Lord, okay? So it's evocative for Lord, my Lord. So Psalm 16, 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, Adonai. Many times Jesus is called Lord in the New Testament. So in the Greek New Testament, Kyrios. Now, Kyrios um, can also, like other languages of the world, uh, have a sense of sir. But there's something that's very proper about this being the Lord. Okay, so in terms of, of the Lord God. And, and you can see this in different ways in terms of how the New Testament writers are expressing and what God is revealing through the human writers. So in terms of Philippians chapter 2, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No one can say Jesus is his Lord except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians. St. Elizabeth at the visitation says, And how does this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? I'd like for us to dwell here for a bit. And how does this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Because the Magnificat is sung by Our Lady after this exchange with her kinswoman Elizabeth. And this is where, in terms of the mother of my Lord, Adonai, and Elizabeth then tells Mary that she recognizes the Lord's presence in her. And it's from this exchange then that Mary then will say, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Right now, let's look at this in terms of connecting it to something that you find in this very O antiphon. Okay, remember, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush. If you go to Exodus chapter 3, you will read about Moses' encounter with the Lord in the burning bush. All right, so chapter 3 begins, Meanwhile, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, leading the flock across the desert. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay. There an angel of the Lord appeared to him in fire, flaming out of a bush. As he looked on, he was surprised to see that the bush, though on fire, was not consumed. 
So Moses decided, I must go over to look at this remarkable sight and see why the bush is not burned. Right, so then uh, Moses comes and he realizes then um, the holiness of the place because he's told to remove his sandals. Um, and the Lord announces who he is. Okay, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. But the Lord said, I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry of complaint against their slave drivers, so I know well what they are suffering. Right? So you just think about how then there's a rescuing here. And Moses said to God, but who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and lead the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will be with you. Right? So Moses' identity then is given by God in this encounter. You know, but who am I? I will be with you. Okay, And then uh, you think about St. Elizabeth there in the visitation uh, where St. Elizabeth says, and how does this happen to me? How does this happen to me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. Okay, so Elizabeth then being like Moses, experiencing the burning bush. And then Exodus 3.14, this is what you shall tell the Israelites, I am sent me to you. Okay, God replied, I am who am. I am sent me to you. I am who am. In John's gospel account, Jesus has various I am statements. I am. And people see that these are echoes of this revelation because Jesus then is um, expressing that divine identity okay, of who God is. I am. And then you see that in terms of, of just the connections again with the burning bush, St. Gregory of Nyssa, in his Life of Moses, writes, From the image of the burning bush seen by Moses, we learn the mystery of the Virgin. The light of divinity, which through birth shone from her into human life, did not wither the flower for virginity, just as the burning bush was not consumed. All right, so this is where, in terms of that, Our Lady, then, as virgin and mother, is uh, on fire but not consumed. Okay, as virgin mother, with God coming um, through her to us, right? Now, in terms of Moses, sometimes uh, people call Christ the new Moses. Say, if you look at Matthew's account of the gospel with the five books, that there's a sort of, uh, of expressed um, recalling of Moses in different ways. So the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So you think Mount Horeb, sorry, Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai, okay? So Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. And then how uh, by Moses encountering the burning bush, that that will um, actually, in some sense, foreshadow the giving of the law on Mount Sinai at that, that same mountain. Okay, wow. Okay, and then in terms of, uh, now it's not the same mountain, but there is a mount, it's the Sermon on the Mount, and you have Jesus. Some people then will see how Jesus then is a new Moses there. St. Leo the Great uh, and other fathers of the church would prefer us to look at it from the other point of view, okay? Because who's on the mount, Mount Horeb, besides Moses? The Lord. Jesus is the same Lord who gave the law on Mount Sinai, you know, the, the Ten Commandments. He is now giving the new law through his preaching. He's preaching. And the beginning of his preaching in Matthew's account of the gospel, the Beatitudes. And that, in a sense, he, while he is preaching, is um, because the Catechism of the Catholic Church calls the Beatitudes as those that 
depict the countenance of Jesus Christ and portray his charity. That, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. That he's, while he's doing this, he's in a sense casting his own image upon his disciples, refashioning them by the breath of his preaching, the breath of his mouth, the Holy Spirit. All right, so, so this is where in terms of just being able to see in terms of Moses, that again, uh, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law upon Sinai. That one is Jesus, the eternal son of God, the word of the father. He's the one who comes. And notice that we pray in the O Antiphon, come to redeem us with your outstretched arm. In the Old Testament, you have these different ways of, of, of reading about God's power. Okay, so God comes, especially in terms of making his power, well, his outstretched arm, and then you feel, or, or his mighty right arm. Well, in terms of Jesus, where especially do you see how he's redeeming us by his outstretched arm? It's the cross. Right, so this is where, in terms of just making the connections, that uh, come to redeem us with your outstretched arm, that at the cross, then, we see that he comes to redeem us by his outstretched arm with your blood. Come to redeem us by your blood. And then where, you know, uh, where did the Lord get his blood? It was within the womb of the Virgin Mary. She's the one, while she's, while she's seeing the Magnificat, the Lord as a baby, okay? The, the one who created the stars, who is her baby within her womb, okay? Who is being formed, who is actually growing in size, okay? In a sense, you know, getting more blood. He's the one who will redeem us by shedding his blood for our salvation, all right, so then, uh, and then to be able to see that, and then with the Magnificat, um, that the Mighty One has become lowly. He's become a baby. And then the Magnificat then is an eschatological hymn, all right, because um, the fullness of what Mary proclaims will be seen at the end in terms of the second coming of our Lord, all right, because already there is, a, already this is at work, but frankly, frankly, there's a lot of injustice in the world. There's injustice in my heart. And I want the Lord to come because I have a sense of this absence. Come. And then to be able to see how, you know, Jesus comes to us through Mary. And, and, then, uh, and then to be able to see that, it, that when we pray the Our Father, you know, that it is an Exodus prayer. You know, that, 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 he, that, that the Lord is the leader of the house of Israel, is leading us out to the promised land. And so then to be able to see that in terms of finally heaven as our goal, as we, as we, as we pray the Magnificat through the O Adonai Antiphon. Now, Our Lady then, while she sings the Magnificat, shows us how my Lord is in her. She has a singular privilege and she shows us how our common holiness, our common holy call is to be on fire, but not consumed. Okay, what do I mean by this? Because I don't want you simply to leave with, oh, okay, that's, yeah, that's wonderful in terms of the mystery of Our Lady. 
because the mystery of Our Lady is also the mystery of the church. It's our mystery, right? And then St. Paul, as he so beautifully does, makes certain connections for us. Listen to what St. Paul says to the Corinthians in terms of uh, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Think about on fire but not consumed. On fire but not consumed. But we hold this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing power may be of God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not constrained, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. That is the mystery of Christian life, of life in Christ. Mary has the singular privilege of doing this most beautifully and without sin, uh, that she is the mother of God. And we are called to be like her in being true disciples of her son, of knowing who her son is, that he is Adonai. And we want the Lord to come and to come through us, actually, to others in the world. That we, by our words, by our actions, by the totality of our lives, then can be instruments of the Lord's coming. So when we pray come, it's not just simply in terms of our own souls, but through us to others, to a world that God so loves. Thank you. And we have a little bit of time, just a little bit of time for questions and answers or comments. I was wondering if you could say anything further about the historical development of the Oantiphons and their origin, uh, if there was a single author or if they were like passed down. So we don't know. Okay. So this is where in terms of we don't know uh, when they originated. Occasionally you find things about 6th century because Boethius has a little comment. Um, sometimes uh, they'll say 8th century, sometimes 9th century. We don't know. And this is like a lot of things in, in terms of liturgical heritage that in some sense, what um, if you want to go back to uh, St. Thomas's way of thinking about the liturgy, the liturgy is what the church does. So this is where, in terms of, in some sense, you know, because uh, I, uh, I, uh, I love history, and I love to find out who said what, when, and all that. But with the liturgy in a particular way, it's what the church does. So that, that this is the church's prayer. And then to be able to see, oh, okay, so with that, this is uh, that that the authority of this is the authority of the church at prayer, and then notice also in terms of just the importance of prayer, Jesus um, wanted to teach his his disciples. He um, he taught them the prayer, the Lord's prayer, and you said you um, so like there are all sorts of Christological controversies where we can have refinements of of the doctrines of the incarnation. Jesus especially wanted to teach us the Lord's prayer. And, the, and so just in terms of the importance of prayer uh, and then how, how, uh, how Jesus remains with his church and really does uh, want us to have right doctrine, okay? Uh, but we should never poo-poo prayer, okay? Because this is, where, this is where in terms of just to be able to see that... Um, that in a special way, we are being united to God on his terms. That, that, because faith then is being expressed in, in, this, in, this, in this life. Yep? I have uh, seen 
perspectives presenting the second person as as um, tangibly in the world in the Old Testament in certain circumstances, like like the one who wrestles with Jacob, sure. or the one who rescues uh, the Daniel's friends from the furnace. What's the um, um, Thomistic view on <laughs> That's great. Okay, so. Uh, especially before the 4th century, that a usual way of interpreting these divine actions in the Old Testament was to think about this with what we might call Christophanies. So that the Logos, in a particular way, was uh, revealing, and so that every action of God in the Old Testament is then showing something about the Logos at work. And then, by the way, in terms of just being able to see the difference between the incarnation and the angel of the Lord wrestling Jacob, that it is not thought that that Christophany was an incarnation, okay? So that uh, so to be able to see the difference, because there were not, uh, and then there was not an understanding of multiple incarnations uh, where they were, okay, so you just want to make sure to see that. Now, in terms of uh, St. Thomas, in some ways, follows St. Augustine, and in the De Trinitate, St. Augustine wants us to make sure that we don't put the Son uh, lower than the Father, okay, so that, that in the Old Testament, we should be careful uh, not too readily to say, oh, because God is acting in the Old Testament, that must be the Son of God, the, uh, the, the Word, okay, so what St. Augustine, and sometimes people will make a hasty conclusion to that, but what St. Augustine says is, you just need to read more carefully. All right, so, uh, so this is where, in terms of reading more carefully, and then to think about how St. Thomas uh, praised the liturgy, and, and then to be able to see the, um, uh, his use of the liturgy and understanding the connections uh, of the sacred scripture, of the Old Testament's way of, de of depicting God, uh, and then to, to make the connections in terms of Christ, okay? So in terms of wisdom in a particular way, right? So, so that St. Thomas has a special love for Christ as wisdom, uh, where then he will, um, uh, he'll do this. So to give you uh, an example from Sirach chapter one, uh, uh, Phone Sapiensiae, okay? So Phone Sapiensiae, the fount of wisdom, that's actually Christ, okay, because he's the word on high. And, and so rather than thinking of phone sapientia as the father, no, no, this is Christ. All right, so that'd be uh, an example specifically from St. Thomas and his love of look, going back to the Old Testament and seeing Christ depicted there. Uh, one uh, reason I brought up the uh, Daniel's friends is I think the, the Babylon, that point, the Babylonian king, I think, refers to a figure that he seems to have seen as the Son, son of God. God. The Son of God. Yeah, yeah. I think it might depend on the translation. Okay. I think I've seen it both ways. Because um, uh, that's, you know, a, a very specific title, like Fount of Wisdom is... Right. Yeah, so uh, so the book of Daniel uh, does have the title Son of Man. Uh, the way I remember that particular text, and of course we can look it up and all the things, but I, and one who looks like a son of God. Yeah. So... So, in, and, and this is where, in terms of angels, are sometimes uh, given titles about sons of God, and then, of course, uh, human beings in different ways. So, uh, royalty in a special way, in terms of that sense. But then you think about how this is really prevalent in uh, in the early church with the New Testament about being 
uh, children of God. So, uh, so yeah, uh, there are all sorts of ways of doing this. And, and so it, it's, I think it's good today for more and more theologians to, to work on the Old Testament and then to see the different kinds of connections uh, because right now there's an uneasiness. And, and people have learned a lot through the historical critical exegesis, and that's wonderful. Okay, so it's, uh, uh, you know, there's an indispensability to uh, what we have learned through historical critical methods. Now what we need to do is to go back and then be able to see more in terms of how uh, all truth comes from the same God uh, who is revealed in Scripture. Do we have time for one more question? Yes. Okay. Um, so the seven we talked about just now are for Advent. Is there a collection of something like this for Lent? Nope. So that is it. Yep. So, <laughs> so, the, so these are special. Uh, so the, these are uh, the seven O antiphons, and no other season of the year has this kind of special set. Yep. You can have one more. Oh, one more. Okay. <laughs> Anybody have a question or a comment? Yep. I just want to say, some of you will end up having children. <laughs> and one of the things you can do in Advent is have like little drawings or whatever that like say the words of the Antiphons with a little picture. And then on as each Antiphon day, we'll go on, you put it up in that place in the house where you gather to pray. So it gets, you get this whole series of things. And kids like <laughs> Great, thank you. So, Great. And um, how about we conclude now with Father Jonah singing the same O antiphon? Okay, so if we, uh, in terms of just the, the, the prayerfulness of, of this. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.